I saw Ringo Starr in the All Star Band. Oh like, yeah, like, like twice. Yeah, is it's just Ringo Starr just like also getting has-beens to like get in, like like get a band together. Uh, uh, they had Sheila E, like the disco drummer lady. That was that was pretty cool. And then there was also um. The guy from Men at Work who plays the piccolo. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so they had a rock piccolo player. Nice. It's really hard to fit that guy into every other song. Yeah, man. You like the uh, Jethro Tull? You dropped that reference uh, about two episodes ago? Yeah. You're really into the flute and the piccolo. Yeah, it's a good instrument. Yeah. it's And it's so compact and easy. It's an easy... Uh, well, actually, no, it's one of the harder instruments It to is play. very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Because it's so small. You know, it takes a lot of armature. It takes a lot of breath, too, because you're not just blowing into something, you're blowing across something, which is very challenging. My best friend in high school played the flute. And all the the dynamics you got to maintain with just the flow of air. Yeah. You know, like with um, the, uh, what do you call it, like the brass, you got the whole, um, yeah, exactly, the buzz that makes a lot of it. And you can do like permanent damage to your fucking face. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm just fixing this tank. Oh, no, it's fine. As I, I had a, I played the clarinet for a little while in middle school. And uh, you have to, like, I would just, like, make my mouth bleed. I'd, like, bite, you have to, like, bite down on the, on the reed mm-hmm. with, like, your, your bottom lip over your teeth to, like, cushion it. And I would just, like, chomp down on that thing and, like, <laughs> hurt myself. Yeah. I wasn't I, very good at it. I played saxophone for, like, two years. And I remember the reed taste yeah. so distinctly right now. Yeah, um, ooh, wow, I can al- taste that too. And yeah. also, like, the bad breath taste I, that I would leave on it yeah. if I didn't remember to, like, bring, you know, a little container with Listerine to, like, soak my reeds in. Yeah, Dry- it's disgusting. I played violin and cello. Nice. Gross. <laughs> I did. I do remember like the grease getting all over the chin rest because it was sixteen and yeah, just, yeah, and you're, just an absolute pizza face. It's, it's very a, very greasy time. Yeah, it is a greasy it's time. Very greasy time. Um, to everybody going through a greasy time right now, it gets, you'll get through it. Yeah, it gets drier. It gets drier eventually. <laughs> I mean, I haven't gotten drier. Hey yo, yo. Did you get a lot of blisters playing? Uh, no, I didn't get a lot of blisters. The biggest problem I had was that my pinky does this weird thing. For, so you for, see how... Oh, okay. So for, for listeners, listeners uh, yeah. her, her, her pinky is able to extend backward, like more than most. Uh, it's like hyper extendable. It's hyper extendable. And, and then also through the range of motion suddenly snaps. It, it so like, it doesn't... I don't have like clean range of motion with yeah. my pinky. Um, and so as you get more advanced in playing string instruments you have to be able to use your pinky a lot more and my pinky is both very weak and very inflexible Mm. and which sucks because all my other my fingers and my hands are by and large very very flexible but not my pinky so Mm. i had to i basically like could no longer really advance much in violin it's pretty sad I, I I I don't have uh, quite the the same thing with the, the 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 pinky that you have, but it's definitely my weakest finger. Yeah, playing it bass tends and to stuff. Be. It would be weird if it was your strongest. That would be <laughs> fucking freakish. No, yeah, that'd be that'd be kind of gross, actually. Yo, yeah. I watched this YouTube video the other day of a uh, kung fu master, like a Shaolin monk uh, type uh, person, who had like done tons of like one finger 
uh, push-ups, like upside down ones and stuff. And it had like this super intense, like finger situation where their finger had like no pain at all. And it was really, really hard. And no shit. This guy, if he wanted to, could just like pierce my chest with his finger and like rip stuff out if he really wanted to. That shouldn't be allowed. So That's, the, you shouldn't be allowed to have fingers that strong. Yeah. So this guy took out uh, three coconuts in a row, like regular ass untampered with coconuts and just pounded his finger through three of them in a row. And it took, you could see like he, 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 he didn't quite make it a couple times and then just kept going at it. Uh. And that's hell of a way of making a living. <laughs> like that's that's some next level shit. Like, oh god! I'm gonna be the guy that can finger coconuts to death. Yeah, and yeah. anything else. Yeah, get out, get out of my way. <laughs> I, I got hard finger to get finger dates. bullets. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> happy episode five zero, boys. Yeah, yeah. Episode five. The big five zero. Big five zero. We're ready for our uh, midlife crisis now. I think. Yep. Yeah. Crisis, no, those come earlier than 50, right? Those... Yeah, I mean, I already got the motorcycle. Yes, um, that's true. So, what what other things do we have to do to act out to uh to deal with our podcast uh a moment of David and I could get divorced. Mo- Ooh, mortality. yeah. Yeah, I could do that. That th- I Let's think it would be bad for the Let's say if we hit 100 pa- <laughs> How about this? If we hit 100 patrons, David and I will get divorced. Make it a stretch goal. I'll uh, put it I'll put the stretch goal up on Yeah. The... Yeah. No, nah, I'm just kidding. Divorce is expensive. I don't yeah, know it would it would be a total wash. It would be a total wash. <laughs> There's no no point in doing that. They have to find a cheaper. We could just get separated. Uh, who's gonna get the cats? Uh, the the top patrons. <laughs> <laughs> um. So let's say right up at the top, maybe, so that you don't uh, tune out before we say this. Um, for episode fifty two, which will be our our birthday. Well, Iron Weeds will be one year old. Yay. Yay. Um, so we're going to do Q&A. So send us any questions you have about like literally anything. Um, you can email them to us at ironweedspod at gmail. You can DM them on Twitter. Uh, Instagram. Instagram. Yeah, find us on Instagram. Yeah. So yeah. Yep. let us know. Um, I just listened to the Antifada 100 episode uh, Q&A that they did. And that, that was actually really good, too. So Yeah, it was a broad range. It was a very broad range. One of the questions I liked the most was like, what will you personally be doing after the revolution? Because like we often talk about like, what will we do the bigger to we. rebuild society? But like, I thought it was interesting to say like, what will you, what would you want to do? So are, is that a question that uh, we're going to, we're going to pose to ourselves? I mean, we could. Yeah. Yeah. I like, um, I like that question. All right. Yeah. That's a so. good one. Cool. Don't, yeah. don't, don't ask me about berries. <laughs> David just is so desperate to talk about all his berries. <laughs> Yo, I put he in. No, no so I don't want anyone to ask me anything about berries. Really? How are your I, blueberries doing? I I don't want to talk about it. Really? <laughs> no, I. Don't. You don't want to tell me how your blueberries are doing? I don't. I'm going to hold you to that. Then I don't want any other t- berry talk either. Okay, so I don't want to hear berry, that I'm anything about your berry bushes. No, for can the rest I, of the season. Can I talk about my berries real quick? Yeah, absolutely. All right, awesome. It's disgusting. <laughs> I actually uh, just installed yesterday uh, drip irrigation for the first time. Awesome. And I managed to fuck it up. Uh, oh, good. I, I installed. That's uh, why you shouldn't talk about yeah, berries. Yeah, I, <laughs> I installed the uh, pressure regulator on one of the systems um, in the wrong way, which is even more embarrassing because i had 
had done it properly minutes before on the other uh, system, but I have basically a little drip line going behind the hops. Is the is is that like uh, when you try to put in a USB and like you put it in once and it's not right, and you put it in twice and it's not right, and then you do it the third time, which should have been the first time for some reason, but now it magically fits. Yes, was it, it was it like that? It's exactly like yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, the, the the you know they finally fixed that shit with USB C. Yeah, like yeah. they really should have just yeah, it uh, fucking rules. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I almost like uh, USB C kind of makes me a, a tanky a little bit because <laughs> they're just like just like all companies must be mandated immediately to switch to USB C. Yeah, Every, everything, everything is USB C now. It's like the best cable. It fucking rules. It's small. It fits in both ways. It can do everything. Just uh, get rid of all the other <laughs> cables. Just get rid of them. All right, so a lot is going on. Yeah, uh, a lot. You know, uh, uh, moods changed by the day, but, um, you know, since last time we recorded, uh, we were talking about how it felt like um, pretty relaxing, like for the first time, like in a while, like there was, there was, you know, a lot of things that led to an optimistic um, feeling. So, you know, now it's um, been six days since then. Uh, how are y'all feeling? Um, I feel... I don't know. I mean, I still feel like things are cooling down a little bit, I think. And you're seeing a lot of um, these movements being co-opted, I think, by more like mainstream activisty types and like all of this. I'm kind of sick of like seeing the police kneeling and all this shit. I don't know if you guys saw the um, quote from a cop who had kneeled. I don't remember which municipality it was, but he was like, I wanted to kick my own ass. Um and like I am embarrassed to put my uniform on after kneeling like that because it's every it goes against everything that you know we stand for. I want to say it was an NYPD, but I, I don't remember exactly. Kneeler's remorse. Kneeler's remorse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so yeah, I guess I don't know. I still feel like it's a really important moment. I'm very excited to talk about the Chaz. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to that because I think that may be one of the more to me exciting thing that's come out of this. I know there have been a lot of people on the left like kind of poo pooing it, but and we can get into that maybe. But um, yeah, generally I'm feeling good. How about you, David? Yeah, I'm feeling pensive. Mm -hmm. I guess Mike pensive. <laughs> uh, you know, I like it's uh, yeah. There, there's you're not feeling Joe vi vibing anymore. No, no, no. I don't think so. No, but, I mean like it felt like an uprising. It's now, I think you're right, Brittany, like getting co-opted a little bit. I think there's also like a uh, a backlash that will inevitably erupt that I, uh, I think it's on the one hand hilarious when it falls on its face. There I saw something in, I think it was Tampa, that they had like a 200 person R Facebook RSVP for uh, a uh, Blue Lives Matter thing. And uh, it was like five people in like a dirt lot with like an enormous cherry picker with an American flag flying over it. <laughs> it was like, that was it. That rules. Yeah. So like, that's cool, you know, but um, for the most part, you know, I, I don't know. I just, and now I just, I'm now I'm just focused on the work to be done, I guess. And we're like trying to figure out what the hell that even is. Yeah. And uh, where I sit in it personally, like what I should be doing right now. And, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of hard work. We'll probably talk a little bit later about, you know, the police are still extremely on their murderous shit. So they sure are, you know, so like there's there's still a lot to be angry at, obviously. Um, but can't can't lie that, you know, when you uh, it took down, you know, you burned down one police precinct and all of a sudden people are listening and you, know, you got the whole Congress 
dressing up in dashiki robes or something so yeah i mean i i don't know well like i've been thinking a lot about what the difference is between uh what happened uh with minneapolis and the fact that after burning down a precinct um the city council voted in a veto proof uh majority to disband the police and down in uh louisville um you know they haven't met one demand of the entire like and they've been in the streets every single day uh since this all is kicked off uh looking for justice for uh brianna taylor um haven't even uh, haven't even fired the cops who killed her haven't you know yeah nothing nothing the three officers involved in her shooting are still on administrative leave yeah, so... They're getting a paid vacation. Yeah, they're getting paid vacation. There are no charges filed. They're, they have not been fired. They have not been disciplined in any official capacity. And and I know that it's been a, a bit uh, since this has come out, but the whole, like, eight can't wait, uh, you know, a thing that's being pushed through by the Democrats right now, which is essentially, like banning chokeholds which are like already banned in like three quarters of municipalities and like the police don't apparently follow their own rules like that often and this is always been a movement about trying to create actual accountability and like either that or actual behavioral change which would come from i don't know disbanding the police for example uh but like reforming the police only works if there are actual consequences for police breaking the rules um or, and there aren't like we know we see over and over again that there just aren't any consequences or like why would you want to reform an organization that's designed to like protect property and white people yeah right? you know right yeah, you know, it's like yeah. if, even if you reform like it's a you know at, at it's root, like what if we reformed bad... the kkk into right. just like a gentleman's yeah. club where, <laughs> they played, where they played cards and yeah. you know yeah and, I, and, they, and we'll have them promise that they won't lynch anybody yeah like, but yeah. like if they do you know well they will have broken the rules and it, that and, will have to be dealt with <laughs> post haste like there was anti lynching laws going into legislation like what the fuck it's already illegal to <laughs> lynch somebody <laughs> and like the, the uh the louisville police are now saying like all right we're, we promise we're not going to no knock raid anymore yeah no more no knock warrants so, um by the way how the fuck do people know like wh- like how does a no knock warrant go into effect like you have to approach a fucking judge and be like all right this person is so dangerous that we can't just like come to the door knock on it say we're police even with a show of force and then you know show the warrant and like search and like you know seize whatever uh, dangerous materials no 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 we have to sneak up on them <laughs> in huge numbers blow a hole through the fucking side of the building with like that big like robotic dick that we were talking about on like the, <laughs> right, the previous yeah. episode yeah. and then you know the cameras like the eight cameras and then like flashbang and like just how fucking dangerous does uh do these people need to be proved to be for like some local county judge to be like yep <laughs> like yeah. Yeah, we need to like waco this because well it's like, not yeah no knock warrants aren't to the best of my understanding, the the purpose of them isn't because necessarily who you're going after is dangerous, but because they may be able to destroy evidence before you are able to take stock of whatever's in the place. Because it's a a no-knock search warrant, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's about being able to search the premises for things. So I guess the idea would be that, you know, if they know that you're coming or they know that you're you're there before you've entered premises, they can destroy evidence and stuff like that. So like... uh enron would get no knocked to me it seems like the appropriate use of a no knock warrant would be to search for like documents you know things that can't be things that can be destroyed um before Mm. a search is able to be 
um, you know, co- conducted. But in uh, which case, you don't get to bring your guns because you're just searching. Yeah, you don't need yeah. to shoot anyone while you're searching. Yeah, it's... <laughs> no, I, 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 um, I just it... want to make it clear. I don't say any of that to like defend no knock search warrants, but rather to say that they're so clearly being misused. Yeah, um, clearly. So I, I don't think it, anyone is expecting reasonably any way for like societal wide change like instantly right you know from from these sorts of events even though we you know like we, we might be primed to think that because you know like the way we teach history is like x happened and then y result you know was legislated or whatever is usually how how we teach it and it's usually a much more longer time horizon for that and we're demand like people are demanding like like really uh incredible things that would require like a massive uh reorganization of of society but like it it is still happening faster i was remarking i think on last episode about how the the prior week felt like a year right and like there's so much happening so quick yeah that like any couple days that we get where like there seems to be a lull in like quote-unquote activity there's actually like tons and tons of shit happening all over the place like there was a march in cohoes yesterday Um, there's activities happening all over the place and there's demands that are being created, you know, uh, by various uh, people, um, some of which are incredibly radical and some of which are totally meaningless and just totally symbolic Mm -hmm. with an effort to try to like, you know, get people to, to chill out. Um, and you have Bernie Sanders and you have Joseph Robinette shoot him in the legs. Uh, if you don't support me, you ain't black. Uh, Biden uh, saying, you know, uh, we definitely don't want to defund the police. Bernie Sanders is like, hey, they don't get paid enough. We need to, uh, you know, figure out how to a uh, little, little more uh, carrot and a little less stick. You know, Talk about fucking like, you know, I... I, I... I'm fuck Bernie Sanders. I'm so pissed off that motherfucker. I'm so mad at him. Like, and I have been pretty much since I felt like they bungled the campaign, you know, early, early on this year with his, you know, my good friend Joe bullshit and everybody, you know, play nice, nice. And, um, it just like all the directives from the campaign about people needing to like be nice and polite and whatever else. Uh, it, it, you know, I just, nothing he has said has disappointed me. As much as him saying that the cops need to be paid more. I mean... Fuck that, dude. Yeah, I... No, they don't. Yeah. No, they fucking don't. And, and we're, we're, we're going to find out how, uh, how much we can actually uh, reduce some city police forces. And, like, yeah. uh, within the current paradigm, you know? I think what we're going to find is that, you know, wrapped up in these demands is usually the, the uh, critique that police are... Just do too many things. I think that's absolutely right. Like we uh, cut every other social program and just make every and criminalize everything. And then we just let the cops sweep it up. Right. And um, uh, I I think what's going to be hard to defend is like when we do start like defunding parts or like, you know, the Minneapolis uh, does what it does with like, you know, the schools don't allow those officers in there anymore. They've technically said that they're going to disband it and everything like there's going to be. Because we just, like, take all all of these incredibly complicated social problems and just run them through, like, the prison pipeline, we're going to find, like, all sorts of really wild things about what works and what doesn't. And we already don't know why crime goes up and down already. Like, there was, like, a, a massive dip in crime in the 90s, like, at, like, 70, 80 percent 
and like crime felt like just plummeted and we still don't know why like, i think just, it's because we got rid of leaded gas but th- that's that's what you're yeah, right that's one theory there's one another actual theory yeah. yeah there's there's another theory that it was um abortion and um you know or, or it's just like you know like rising standard of income uh, standard of living uh, uh or and, and then also like better security systems on cars you know like there's like a ton of stuff that and none of it is anything that the police have ever done and we know that because if you look at crime going down in any one specific area you can never link it to any one particular policing activity like the the closest thing we have is like uniform uh it's, it's, it's stuff that's basically called like data driven policing is usually like some sort of catch-all term for it where you're like i i know that this person is out some you know like somewhere and they did this thing hey other police department have you seen this person that thing like just like that simple thing also right is accountable for some of it but that's it like they, they don't none of the stun guns not like everything that they wear on their belt all the cameras like the their, their fucking drones their tanks none of that can be proven to do anything yeah so I don't know if you guys have been paying any attention to the um, the the media, especially like the right wing media, but there are six city blocks in the city of Seattle, Washington, that have captivated the news and nightmares of a lot of right wingers in this country, and um, it's a pretty interesting uh, situation. Have you guys uh, been following much at all about this uh, chaz that has developed? I, I haven't really. All that I, I mean, know, I know of it, and yeah. I've seen like people, mostly lefty people, talking about it in various, you know, ranging from like uh, glowing to critical terms. But I know that you have been really following it from like a right wing media perspective, and I'm really excited <laughs> to hear about that, Chris, because yeah. you these brain worms, you got to get some of these out before yeah. they start to take control the and pre- just use you as a fucking sock puppet for Tucker Carlson. Yeah, I've been uh, on a city uh, press tam drip uh, for the last seventy-two <laughs> hours, so I'm ready. I'm ready. He's for, currently for the sucking truth. on a colloidal silver lozenge. <laughs> yeah, it's strange that they made these so big. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, oh, that's that's just a metal. <laughs> <logo>. <laughs> oh, uh, they, they, uh, um, I did see one thing that like Fox News was uh, like copying and pasting the same Antifa super soldier into like three different. Images. I saw that, and they didn't crop out all of the car that he was yeah. saying. Yeah. This like big chunk of red yeah, car. I like yeah. I've been fucking trying. Yeah. Uh, so I've been trying to find out more about this uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone um, in Seattle, which is uh, currently a protest site um, that has developed um, primarily because after I think it's like nine days of like heavy uh, police um, protester conflict in terms of, um, you know, clashes and violence. And they basically like ran out of tear gas and all of these um, extreme levels of um, repression. The police essentially were told to stand down and they abandoned um, one of the precincts. I think they called like the sixth precinct or whatever, uh-huh. uh, which has, uh, and as soon as the police moved out of this area, the protesters um, basically took up the positions that had become police barricades and made their own barricades yep. and claimed the area as autonomous from the United States, and uh, which I think is you know more cheeky and uh, conceptual and symbolic than anything Though else. Fox News has reported it as the U.S. Chaz border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the D, and there's a DMZ okay. of like a half a, a half a, a street between the the, the, the two. Rules, man. 
So yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting uh, experiment. Uh, I think a lot of journalists are covering it as uh, in democratic organization. Um, and the closest analogy I can think of uh, for this would be something that's considerably larger, uh, which is the Freetown Christiania Project in Copenhagen. Right. You've been there, right? Yeah. I went with uh, my, my now uh, fiance um, and we basically spent like two days there and just rented a bicycle. And it was like this sort of interesting place where there were no police, but there were community guidelines that allowed the population there to like help police itself. Like for example, you couldn't run. It's like a tiny anarchist city. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, so Tucker Carlson and uh, various right wing media things are declaring it. I think it's like the 269th, um, you know, uh, sovereign nation of the world. And they're, you know, trying to mock uh, the idea of being autonomous, like within America within an American city. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I had a conversation with my neighbor about this because I was like, oh, do you guys like hear about this jazz? And they're like, yeah, I mean, how can they claim that they uh, they now own that area? And I was like, well, you know, ownership uh, or possession is like nine tenths of the law. And then that last tenth is enforcement. And like, if the police aren't going to go in, then those people own that now. You know, to the degree that the state actually is going to try to enforce some type of private property law. And that whole area has businesses in it. It's got, you know, um, people's houses. Um, It's it's not just um, public utilities that were taken over. Uh, There's also like a park, which is now, you know, sort of a like fairground. And they're like showing lots of documentaries and shit at night. Um, But yeah, those people all sort of have to now get along with this new situation, which is that uh, it's a 24-7 protest camp and that uh, there are apparently, uh, you know, armed, although they uh, allegedly keep it, um, you know, hidden from view, uh, people at the various barricades that have been uh, recreated after the police left, um, when the police had barricaded away the the protesters. Now the protesters are protecting those because I think there was a case where a, a van drove by and like shot somebody in the arm. And so now they have like structural barricades that don't allow for cars to come, but the ability to like move them out of the way in case like a fire department uh, needs to come in for some type of issue. Uh, and oh, so they want to rely on the fire department. <laughs> <laughs> that convenient. Yeah. So the, the Seattle police have this thing where they won't go in except for a mass casualty uh, uh, event or scare. So that, that they would, most certainly won't cause. Well, right. So that would that would be like an active shooter. Like right, uh, yeah. that would be a fire. You know. Mm-hmm. In a structure or like, you know, a potential building collapse or like a, a pipe, uh, you know, bursting natural gas or the something shit like that. that the cops should yeah, you know, be doing <laughs> and that's it. Like. Or that just generally government should be doing. Right, right, yeah, right. yeah, like why the cops need to show up for like a gas leak doesn't make any sense. You can't arrest gas. Yeah. So there, like there is this. It'd be kind of funny to watch him try that. <laughs> Come here, you. Stop resisting. Got a vacuum. Oh, he keeps filling whatever container I put him in. He got like a, a vacuum cleaner out there, like sucking it up. Um, yeah. Uh, but the, the rumors are wild. They're totally crazy, especially from like the right wing media. Like they, there's like this rapper, uh, Ras, uh, Simone, Raz Simone. Um, and, he like, you know, was just a prominent like local celebrity that was like involved in the protest at the point where the police moved away and people declared it an autonomous zone. Um, and at one point he was like on 
guard duty or like public safety or whatever they've called the the people that are just trying to like look out for bad actors um and then allegedly it like had like an ar or an ak and this was in response according to an interview that he did with his cousin that i listened to this morning um to a uh listening to the police scanner and having like several uh trucks of armed white supremacist types like approaching like you know the scare we had in troy with like the uh, five or so boogaloo boys that showed up armed um apparently happened there and it was like at night and so they just like took out the long guns that they had there and they like you know were ready to defend the perimeter of this autonomous zone and it's you know obviously extremely controversial you know like the use of having all these like peaceful protesters who now are also with an armed protectorate like element that they, you know, are working with, um, declaring a certain area under their control. And, uh, you know, I'm interested to see how this all shakes out, but like, uh, the president of the United States (laughs) has has waded into it. And he's like, if you don't clear out this ugly anarchist encampment, like I will, like, you know, you cannot let a part of the city fall to these, you know, domestic terrorists and, uh, the whole, which I take real offense to, because I know a lot of our anarchists and pretty much all of them are really hot. Like, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's not fair to call them ugly. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, it's fake news. It's fake Uh, news. Yeah, yeah. it's like somebody who you know does the uh, the the self styling and grooming of Donald Trump calls me ugly. I think that's you know (laughs) (laughs) take it as a compliment. I mean, I can't I can't take credit for the Chaz. Obviously, like I'm just barely trying to understand it from a distance. I've been uh, studying some uh, Twitter feeds as well. There's a couple uh, local reporters. One who I want to give a shout out to uh, because his live stream was really useful was uh, Omari Salisbury. And uh, they are reporting with Converge Media. Mm. So what was Tucker Carlson saying about the Chaz? Oh, you know, he was he was making some tongue in cheek jokes about how um, leftists hate borders and they hate walls and they hate the idea of like keeping out the other. And at the same time, see the imperative of use of uh, armed uh, defense and uh, the creation of barricades and the uh, creation of an autonomous zone, which is primarily um, created by way of artificial borders uh, <laughs> gotcha. so, you know he, he, interesting he, that you use borders <laughs> in discussing your internationalism <laughs> yeah uh but you know on top of that they he was saying that this guy raz uh, was a warlord and declared himself a monarch and like as according to raz himself like none of that is is true at all i mean you know who knows i'm not there but uh like uh, the right wing is trying to make this out to seem like a lord of the flies thing right but, from my view on like live stream, it looks like Occupy 2.0, and uh, you know but this time with like guns, yeah, yeah, and way and way more black people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, not like there there wasn't uh, people of color in Occupy, but like it's 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 very heavily um, uh, multiracial. Um, and this is yeah. in Seattle. Yeah, it's yeah, like true. Sec- second. I think it's like the second whitest city. And there's a lot of uh, people from like the Duwamish tribe uh, that are there that are like, you know, I think that there's even talk of like ceding it directly to them. I've seen talks of repatriation. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, which I find really interesting. That whole discourse around like um, what to do with liberated land vis-a-vis indigenous peoples is very interesting it is um like do you, do you have any uh you know uh things you want to get into about that because that's something that i feel like i need to research more before i feel like i'm going to regret 
saying things in a certain way, you know, because like I would definitely need to know way more about the ins and outs is particularly like the legalities of it before I could speak to it in any useful way, I think. Um, But the idea of anti-colonialism goes directly toward the idea of uh, repatriation in the same way that the idea of anti-racism goes directly toward the idea of reparations. Right. Um, So, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting thing to see. So all eyes on Chaz. but. It is uh, not a uh, something that anybody seems to need to worry about. <laughs> it's about six city blocks full of people who are mostly watching documentaries together and like smoking weed. Yeah, this is like if Lark Street seceded from the United <laughs> States. Yeah, it's like because that that's a uh, I've never been to Seattle, but like the capital, but Capitol Hill in Seattle is like sort of just known as like the like a Greenwich Village type of place it's got like you know it's, it was the you know where the gay scene was in in the 60s and there's still a lot of gay bars there and there's like uh it's just like the alternative bohemian sort of place of the of the city so that's um but it's very residential from what i understand so that's a uh, um so it's both like not maybe not surprising that that's where that took place but also maybe really surprising because like those sorts of places uh today are mostly like cartoons of themselves right they're they use the word like uh, like authentic urban styling or 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 living um uh more and more as they become less authentic and uh it's it's interesting that uh, like something real like happened there when it honestly it could just as easily been really reactionary or you just have like a bunch of liberals who've uh, liberal landlords who just like style their their bars and uh, lofts like like city lofts to just kind of look like their alternative when they're when it's just all consumption yeah uh, there's a, yeah. a lot of really beautiful mural work that's going up you know yeah. pretty much all the time like it seems to be a focus point of like a ton of uh artists and stuff yeah yeah i'm just like remembering back to occupy and like how sorely wrong all of the media coverage was of that and and like how hard it was to see political orientation at that time not only because um we were creating a bunch of new ones and like this was like the the first time that like the overton window like moved a little bit from like the 90s era like deep deep depoliticization of of the news it was like one of the first times we started talking about inequality on like mainstream news like at all um but then you'd have like but on top of that you'd also have like figures like tim pool who actually showed up in albany there's a picture of me and him on the Saratoga, what, are they, what is their newspaper? Saratoga Tribune or something. It's like, and, um, and that guy is awful. You know, like that, that guy is like a real uh, reactionary um, asshole. And but at the time, he was just like the guy revolutionizing video, like live stream video. Yeah, in all these different occupations. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you so you just like show up and like, oh man, look, it's Tim Pool. Yeah, like what? Like film this, film that. You know, and it's like and and it would be and like you know, like I, I I'm not like gonna draw any uh, conclusions about the guy you were talking about, Chris, the uh, Omari Salisbury. Like I don't, I'm not saying like you know we need to be careful about what this guy is uh, thinking and saying, but like it's it's going to be very fascinating to watch not only what that place is, but then how it's mediated, right? Like right. how yeah. how how it how, the representations of it all around the world is going to be very different than what it is like to experience it uh, on the ground. And it's, I think it's like one of those things about autonomous zones, um, which is like, there's like a theory of like an anarchist theory of autonomous zones before that. that yeah. It that was, yeah. That's, yeah, it's not a, um, 
Yeah, and the T stands for temporary. Yeah, the idea right? of of setting a permanent besettlement it yeah. suddenly becomes uh, contrary to the the goal of the autonomous zone. Right, you know? which is why you want to think about uh, when you're thinking about like assessing the Chaz. How does one assess the Chaz? You know, you like you want to uh, um, if it fell apart tomorrow. That's not necessarily a failure, right? It, was, it, it might it might have done the work that it was supposed to do, right? Um, all, all big asterisks on this because Hakeem Bey, who came up with the temporary autonomous zone, is like a theory. I think is may, maybe a pedophile. I don't know. They have heard some bad shit about him. Uh, but everyone uh, is horrible. Trust, yeah, yeah. trust nobody. Tr- yeah, you know, trust none of what you hear, half of what you see. Yeah, we we, we were talking off, <laughs> off mic earlier about a uh, like stop citing Heidegger. You know, it's like it might, it might be worth it to stop citing Hakeem Bey also. But <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, but but the but that doesn't mean that like you know when you establish an autonomous zone, you become a pedophile, right? So it was like there's like yeah, yeah, in fact, it's the the establishment that's the pedophile. This yeah. is a super useful transgression. I look forward. Yeah, to. yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, but I, I, um, I think uh, I think this is going to be um, even again if even if it fell apart tomorrow, I think it'd be interesting to pick apart how it's viewed and like who's uh, broadcasting like images of the, of this place. It reminds me a lot of Occupy in the way that it is a physical space where politics is happening. Like it's a bunch of people getting together right now, trying to like do politics, whatever that means and is, and, you know, discussion and engaging with people. And you're going to get a lot of different people. Like they're not checking your social media to see like, if you're problematic, like at the fucking like, um, checkpoints, like it's basically a bunch of people just like at the protests, trying to like keep people from, you know, getting harmed by bad actors. And then outside of that, people who are right wing, people are left wing, um, you know, are coming together in this space at the moment and talking stuff out and there's fights that are breaking out and there are people having to do a lot of mediation i saw shelly shared a tweet on twitter well of course it was on twitter of um, (laughs) a video of a guy who had busted out a window of the sixth precinct um the police precinct there and um they were escorting him out of the out of the zone yeah they're like you're causing trouble yeah (laughs) and he had this big like toolbox with him and they were like yeah okay now you can't you can't be in here with your toolboxes like and, and the guy who's walking them out is like you're taking away from the message that's what you're doing and this older white guy's like well what is the message and the guy rep- responds to him and he goes the message is no more and he's like no more what no more what and he's clearly like playing this kind of what i think of now as almost like a caricature of like you know white sort of like career activists in a lot of these spaces which is this notion that like no we have to get our shit together we have to have a message we have to have demands blah 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 we have to have and this guy is just basically saying like no like we're doing something different and we our message is no more no more injustice and you breaking windows of a police station is not contributing to our message and so, it, you know, the question of no more, um, there is a website which has a very funny uh, URL, which is uh, caphillauto.zone. Uh, and if you go there, you will find on their demands page um, a long and uh, yet concise uh, list of demands. Um, they call for uh, the defunding and abolition of the police. They call for the reappropriation of those funds into all of the critical social work that the police currently does that can be done by less coercive and violent forces. Um, and 
They also call call for prison abolition, and I think they're even demanding that uh, all people of color who have been uh, convicted for violent crime are retried by a, uh, a, a jury of their peers. Black people? Uh, that's w- what I would imagine they I mean. think that that is like, I mean, I don't want to get into like segregated juries. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, right, I don't yeah. know if having... Uh, I, I, I don't know about all that. That could be a slippery slope to some unfortunate things. But like that is so like we really should be demanding that juries are more reflective of a- someone's actual peers. Like it is wild how much discretion attorneys have in terms of just like jury selection, whitewashing juries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, these are a lot, there are a lot of demands on here that are calling for uh, what the Democrats are uh, calling for. <laughs> you know, big structural, big structural uh, reforms yeah. and and change. And, wear uh, kente cloth. <laughs> I, I demand my senator wear kente cloth. Is that a thing? But yeah, so so we'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, check it out. Um, but you know, it, it it's an interesting thing. You know, it's like uh, the idea of power vacuums, and when people are primed in this moment and thinking explicitly politically and there's like a large amount of people that are have like skin in the game like have been engaged in the street conflicts for the last nine days suddenly see a power vacuum they like fill it yeah to the degree that they can and i think that that's um uh, human nature like that the anarchic uh organic structuring and people jumping in to help out and you know medic teams and people who are building various structures just sort of organically happen you know points to a lot of the things that kropakin uh has been talking about uh during this entire book uh that you've been putting together yeah absolutely um and I think, like, another really valuable thing to come out of, it'll be similarly to the purpose, one of the better purposes that Occupy served, but I think at this time maybe even more substantial is, like, the community ties that are created in spaces like that, um, that then outlast the zone itself. Um, the kind of collective memory that gets created, the experience of doing politics in that sort of novel way that can be carried forward. Because this is, like... I think that what we're seeing right now, broadly speaking, in terms of just uprising, is going to be quite temporary. I'll be surprised if it goes on for longer than another week or maybe a couple of weeks. But this, we are entering a period of time when things are in such rapid decline that this is bound to happen again. And who knows exactly what issue it could be about the economy, could be about unemployment, could be about further massive injustices, could be about corporate bailouts. Who knows what will trigger the next time? But all the lessons learned now through these various demonstrations and, you know, especially really the really interesting and novel projects like the Chaz are going to just, you know, be like fertile. They're going to fertilize the fields for the next thing that gets sown. And that, I think, is really even for people who are very kind of, and I hear I'm talking about leftists who are cynical about the, you know, temporary autonomous zone and some of these like liberal co-optations of the movement, like even from that perspective, what is happening is good and will be useful in the future. Yeah. You know, this does um, another, kind of, this does remind me of a, like a, a little bit larger, much older autonomous zone, which is actually like the birth of uh, of fascism, right? Is a, um, a Gabriel, D'Antonio, no, what was his name? Uh, D'Annunzio, right? Gabriel D'Annunzio. He uh, he was a, a this like Italian poet that was a big World War One like um, uh, uh, figure. Like, he he romanticized war, and I think he, he like got in the back of planes, and he never actually he like he would like drop the bombs off of uh, 
um, uh, uh, a bombardier. Yeah, he yeah he was basically a bombardier. Um, and then he became like a poet, like basically the poet laureate of post uh, World War One, uh, post World War One Italy. Um, and then uh, he co- uh, he eventually gets kicked out uh, because he he just posts too hard, and he gets kicked out of there. And he, and he happened. Yeah, and he, and he he ends up in this like um little port city in what's now Croatia. It's a um called Fiume, and uh, and it's just like this gigantic like really messy uh, uh hyper freedom par- party like like uh, uh town and you get these really weird um like horseshoe theory things happening where like uh lenin is like sending him a uh like a a, a box of chocolates and shit you know just like I, it's interesting what you're doing down there you know he's like everyone's just like very interested in like this like r- radical break in the uh the the nation state right and he's and he has this like just like really really he's just like constantly talking about like everyone should just like be fucking each other and living free from day to day in this city and and it's just like true anarchist fashion yeah and there's just like there's just like murder and and uh, like all like just violence happening in the city all the time and he thinks it's just like the state and that is necessarily like the state of nature for fascists right is that like people just killing each other and he's just like sort of creating being fomented by him and his his group like were they the ones like not allowing for peace to just be like maintained by the people. Oh, yeah there's like death squads walking around and stuff like that but but there's but it's also just like a, a space of like really significant experimentation really just like every person that is that has some sort of like foot in the world of uh like turn of the 20th century early 20th century uh, um uh politics like has like went there just to see what the hell was happening which huh. i which I, I i mentioned just because like you know like uh that turned into fascism right uh i'm not saying the chaz would turn fascism obviously but you know like you get like all sorts of really um radical things get clarified in these uh spaces of 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 high freedom and and people get i you know some people get really good ideas some people get really bad ideas yeah well I'm going to stay tuned. I'm interested to see what happens. You want to go. I, well, yeah, you know, like I'm interested to see, to see what it would be like. Uh, if it, it'd be interesting to compare and contrast between that and uh, Freetown Christiania, which is like the closest thing I can imagine. But then it's also Freetown Christiania isn't ha- going through like an Occupy esque right. like formulation of, of what it's about. Like it's all, it's the residents who are all in real close agreement about what it's about. And well, it's and their, their economy is all you said is like, has a lot to do with tourism, like tourism. Though, well, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they, they definitely like that, that, uh, that, taken a lot of uh, additional uh, input from people who just want to go check it out. Yeah. And also there's like a, uh, a soft agreement between the, the, the Danish police and the um, uh, people in uh, the, the neighborhood to try and contain soft drug sales. Right. So that way, like, you know, there is like not a, uh, a, a growing level of the black market like activity happening like out in the streets of Copenhagen. Yeah, is that, that's just like such a fascinating connection of like, like tourism implies like inauthenticity, right? Like they're performing something that you that they've broadcast or, or branded and then you want to go there and see it mm-hmm. right uh um uh, where and whereas this like chaz in seattle like sets up shop in a place that is very that i'm sure more than one person is called inauthentic right because it's it's like the the like the the um 
it's bo- authentically bo- inauthentic. Yeah, it's like the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and it's like the like the bohe- bohemian neighborhood where you bring your wacky aunt to like go have lunch or yeah. something, right? But then the tall bike shop. Yeah, yeah. But then something like this, something like the Chaz happens there. Like I don't know. I, th- I think these places also like really play with uh, authenticity and um, like play acting politics and then also doing them. I think is often like a really thin line. Yeah, yeah. You call it cosplay. We call it dress rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a really interesting approach to some of the, you know, so I guess maybe like instead of just alluding to these uh, vague left critiques, I should say like, well, you know, there's no movement, like there's no, we don't have the infrastructure on the left to like handle, this isn't just with regards to the Chaz, but with regards to a lot of the uprisings, like there's not enough of a structure on the left to make any of these ultimately meaningful in the long run. And, you know, but basically like kind of the stereotype of the old saying like you don't have enough experience and you don't know what you're doing and like this is you know gonna be either inconsequential or disastrous um all of which amounts to the argument of like you know larping right you're you what you said chris you what you call cosplay we call you know dress dress rehearsal and i think that that is like you have to like look the revolution is serious business and if you're gonna make it work and you're gonna make it like happen you got to practice. You got to practice. And I think that stuff like this is really, um, I think that we should all like hope to at some point find the conditions to be right that we are able to set up little zones like this and do little experimental things. And, you know, we have things like mutual aid networks and communes and like different ways of trying these things out and trying to sort of build what is what is it david build the new and the shell of the old um but i think that chaz is something very very different and i would love to see more examples of it cropping up because if if you've never been a part of something like that you don't know how you're going to react to the new world that we inevitably build when this one comes crashing down around us which i think we all know will happen sooner or later so yeah i don't know I think it's there's nothing wrong with cosplaying. Yeah, nothing wrong with LARPing. Yeah, LARPing's not bad. No, stop and, shaming people for LARPing. And, and sometimes, like LARPers and people who dress and uh, do this type of thing, like to in a, 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 a spectacle level, have a political impact. You know, or at least on, on some level. Like, well, you know what LARPing does? It engages your creativity. It helps yeah. you become a better problem solver. It helps you become better at working in groups toward a common goal. Fake it till you make it to gay space luxury communism. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This... Oh yeah, the the uh, um, I, you're making me think of that documentary Darkon. Oh, love Darkon. It's such a good movie. Uh, it's a it's a documentary about um LARPers in like like middle Maryland, like the central Maryland or something. And uh, and yeah, it's just like like dude who feels like a loser and then he gets into LARPing and he's like the king of a clan that they you know, like beat each other over the head with foam wiffle bats and shit and then like <laughs> but but you got to plan like how you're going to meet the you know like your enemy on the battlefield of the municipal soccer uh field in the <laughs> soccer pitch and and he's like yeah I learned all these different management techniques uh for LARPing and now I'm the manager of this pool store I was, you know, I was like yeah bro get it you know like get paid yeah. that's great and, like, Capitalism smashes the creativity and the ingenuity and the like community building out of us. And so, of course, a lot of these 
I'm not going to call the Chaz anti-capitalist because I don't know if that's a, I don't, don't really know if that's an accurate or like fair. I don't think um, there's a consensus around capitalism yeah. just yeah. yet. But nonetheless, it, when you see tensions arising out of an unjust system in which we live, like naturally that, that blowback, that this response that we're seeing now, which I would say is blowback to an unjust system is going to be fertile ground for doing the things that you know, that I would frame as capitalism, but others might just call an unjust, unequal society, what that like crushes out of you is going to play out in these in these um, scenarios. It's just like people are going to reach out and stretch and do the things that they don't feel like they're able to do in their day to day lives. And that's like really good practice. It just reminds me of uh, Vermin Supreme when we had him on and he was talking about building um, the at the rainbow gatherings every year and how those were Taz's. And basically right. people would just spring to and build latrines and, you know, uh, figure out how to uh, distribute donated food. And, you know, uh, just I, I, I feel like there's something really, really romantic about that. Right. Like the reason that I'd want to go and visit the ta- uh, the Chaz um, is because there's like such an immediate sensation of like meaning in coming together and fulfilling each other's like rapidly. um developing and uh becoming a uh, self-aware set of needs right and like there's a lot of uh possibility like you know it's like when i start on a new beat and i like you know create a new file on the computer and i start playing around with stuff like i start, there's so much possibility there like right in the very beginning when mm-hmm. every, everything is like just being formed and uh i think that that's really addictive um and maybe life is just about going from one Taz to the next. <laughs> you know? uh, there, there's a, um, I, feel, I feel like the, this idea is also um, shows up in, po- in like really mainstream popular culture too, that capitalism or just like the way of things doesn't let you be an entire person, right? I mean, like every, like everything that Mike Judge has ever made, for example, right? You know, like office space kind of stuff. But then there's also like, like the, the 1997 uh, Kevin Costner classic the postman right we're like <laughs> oh yeah i love that movie uh, yeah that movie rules no but like uh so uh, boring uh will uh will the guy thing will potter's character potter's character uh um uh general bethlehem it's just, just like such a dime store novel name <laughs> but you know it's like he's got this like uh um monologue where he's like you know what i you know he's like the warlord uh of um of the the region or whatever and he's like you know what i was before this before the fall you know like i i was a car salesman you know or like you know he's just like some boring dude that you know like never made anything of his life and like yeah and uh and now oh, like do, do not speak down on on my our fellow car So, breaking news to us, <laughs> David just discovered during the break, um, as like while we were uh, regrouping from our discussion of Chaz, that there is now an encampment that's being called both the Unhoused Encampment as well as Camp Maroon um, that's been set up in Philadelphia. And it's essentially a camp for unhoused people of the city. Um Pretty amazing. We're going to play, just cut in the audio from a young man, um, Alex Stewart of Revolutionary Workers Collective, who is describing the encampment. And so that's what you're going to hear right now. 
They come by with a Philadelphia, um, city of Philadelphia garbage truck. They tell them they have a certain amount of time to leave, get their belongings, and then they throw everything else in the garbage truck. They do not offer any any services. They offer the shelter where people have already passed, we're already passed away from COVID because the shelters cannot provide um, adequate social distancing. And they also just, they never provide them permanent options. A lot of the residents here say that they've been in programs hosted by the city and other nonprofits that take their food stamps and SSI and other income they have for three to six months, promising them housing. And then after the three to six months, they just kick them out. Okay. Um, what should people know about the encampment and like setting up what, what, what is going on here? What should people outside of the city know? So Camp Maroon is set up autonomously by the people who are the most oppressed, which is our unhoused brothers and sisters, and supported by residents of Philadelphia who may have housing but are also in the spectrum of housing insecurity. We all in Philadelphia have high rents due to developers, due to the city deciding with, deciding to give um, new 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 residents of the city um, how tax credits and uh, tax abatements that raise the taxes for homeowners and also raise the rents for younger folks who are younger folks and working folks in this city so what people need to know is that we are all unified on the spectrum of housing insecurity you may not be homeless today but most of us are one check away from being homeless um, most of us are spending oh well over 30 percent of our income on housing and it keeps going up because housing is based in profit housing is not based in housing individuals the city, the Philadelphia Housing Authority, which is sponsored by HUD, it gets gets almost two hundred fifty million dollars a year from HUD. Has over has eight empty houses for every homeless person in the city, but they refuse to house our brothers and sisters. So what we're saying here is that we're all in the same battle. You may be housed today, but you may not be housed tomorrow. And so we're ensuring that the ones that are on the, that are the most vulnerable, that are the most oppressed, and don't have housing, if we can ensure that they have housing and they ha their voices are heard, that all of our voices are heard. Okay, thank you. Uh, and so one thing that um, I, w I would just want to underline from what uh, Alex Stewart says is like how connected everyone is here, right? That like the city is designed to give money to new residents because they want to expand their tax base and they're going to attract people with tax breaks, which are only attractive to people that are already well off. No one, no average actual working person is like, ooh, a tax break, you know, <laughs> to, to help move, right? So the, uh, but what that ends up doing is it benefits like a small group of, you know, creative class professional managerial class kind of assholes uh, at the expense of literally everyone else, right? Because it raises up all the other rents. It makes housing prices more expensive because it diverts costs to homeowners that already pay property taxes. And so like everyone else uh, uh, pays more to live in the city because everyone is speculating on the, the cost of housing, not necessarily building housing to, to actually put everyone in a house. So it's a it's an incisive, really direct um, uh, analysis of what's going on, not just in Philadelphia, but basically every city in the yeah, country and, in, and, in, and increasingly around the world, because we've exported this model very effectively, effectively to the rest of the world. Yeah. So, yeah, like, you know, decommodifying housing, like uh, to, to guarantee housing as a human right. Got to like, do it. You know, it, it, it's it's definitely what we have to do. And then thinking about the, the particulars of how you go about it, um, there are definitely some low hanging fruit, like he was pointing out, where there was, what, $240 million being given to the HUD, which has currently controls lots and lots of unused structures. Um 
there it can't even be the argument that like we just can't do that right. you know like it would have to be essentially the argument being how do we have housing be guaranteed as a human right and so much of like people's wealth in this nation tied to like real estate and like the private ownership of it often for profit being like their primary purpose of of having that um I mean, it would be really weird. Like, would we like dispossess people of their family home being like, no, you got to get out. Like we're, we're mixing it all up and it's going to be like the, 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 the cartoon of like the communist pile of coats where everyone takes their coat off and then they (laughs) all like fight or whatever. But you know, it doesn't even have to be that way. Right. Because like, as the guy said, like there is already enough housing for everyone. Well, and Kropotkin gets into that in his chapter on, on housing too. Right. And he actually cracks on that joke, right? It's not, nobody needs to take all their coats and put them in a pile there are so many coats that nobody own like that are owned in shops that people can take those coats um and maybe there are lots of people who are like wow well, i have so many coats i'll just get rid of some of them and somebody else can have them it's the same with housing like there are plenty of people living in enormous houses that can share space with other people there are people who have needs that aren't being fulfilled and there are people who have fulfillment beyond their needs and so it's not about like putting all the houses in a pile and redistributing them equally. It's about like taking those spaces that are already free and making them truly free. And by which I mean free to be used by people who need them. Yeah. So great work down in Philly. Absolutely incredible. And keep an eye on that one. Like some of these pictures from the encampment are really, I'll post a, a, a link to a tweet and the, um, in the show notes, but it's like, you know, there are tents, there's first aid, there's a hand-washing state, station, there's Black Lives Matter flags and, and signs put up everywhere. It's, it's incredible. And we touched on it a bit earlier, but I think we should talk a little bit more about the, um, the case of Breonna Taylor. I agree, yeah. Because we mentioned earlier about the differences between what's happened in Minneapolis and this kind of decisive action versus what's happened or rather not happened in Louisville in the wake of Breonna Taylor's murder, which actually happened, I think, like two months ago at this mm-hmm. point, maybe longer. Um, so Breonna Taylor uh, shot in her home, sleeping in her bed after Louisville police conducted a no-knock search warrant, busted into her apartment wearing plain clothes. Um her boyfriend shot, fired one shot at them, not knowing, thinking they were just intruders, of course, because that was what you would think if a bunch of people in street clothes bust in your apartment. Yeah, allegedly, he uh, asked, like, who is it? Like, you know, because someone right. was breaking down there his door and no one would announce themselves. They weren't saying, like, this is the police, blah, blah, blah. And so he opened fire, yeah. assuming he was just, you know, about to be. He got off one shot, hit a cop in the leg. And then the officers, and this part is like a little bit inexplicable to me, shot Brianna Taylor in her bed eight, eight, eight times. times. Yeah, 20 shots total, at least, uh, were reported by the police. She was 26 having... years old. She was 26 years old, studying, she was, an, she was a emergency room tech, uh, studying to be a nurse. Um, you know, this is like one of those, you so often get the uh, so-and-so was no angel. You know, you hear you hear that narrative all the time, like, oh, well, it was somebody. But here's the case of just like your ideal victim, right? I mean, if you had Model to like... human being. Yeah, like if you had to, you know, come up with just the perfect, like, um, unblemished victim, um, that is Breonna Taylor. And yet the cops who killed her have not been fired. They are on administrative leave. They've not been fired. They've not been charged. Um, 
the city of Louisville has now said that they will put a ban on no-knock search warrants. And actually, Rand Paul, if this gives you any sense of how just fucking far behind Dems are, Rand Paul has now introduced legislation that would put a a nationwide federal ban on no-knock search warrants for all federal law enforcement, as well as um, deny any federal funding to local municipalities that also still conduct no-knock no knock search warrants. So basically, which is huge because like the no-knock search warrant is just such a blatant violation of our constitutional rights. Uh, yeah, people remember in, a, um, in Troy, our drug task force was completely disbanded because they broke in illegally broke into someone's house uh yeah. um to do some uh what they claim to be a, a drug raid and then bragged about it to the landlord and that's how they, we, anyone found out about it is because they think it's so cool and they it is i guess they just assume that like the property owner rightfully that the property owner would be cool with this right that they and the and it wasn't you know and that's the only reason why it turned into something and like those officers got to um and only then it was only because of yeah. the property owner yeah. was able to like right, flex a yeah. little bit of yeah. the yeah. and and they got to uh, retire with full benefits. Of course. Yeah. Because yeah. you know I know was, in every job I've ever had, if I like royalty royally fucked up, they just said, Well, as your punishment, you no longer have to work and you can have all this money. Yeah. That's usually what happens to me when I fuck up at work. Right. And you know, I wanna like spend a little like to me. A lot of this is uncovering so many of the, like, you know, we're talking about chokeholds, we're talking about, um, you know, shooting people who are running away, shooting them in the back. Another really pernicious aspect of how just unjust and, and patently corrupt policing is, is this idea of plainclothes officers, which is what, you know, ultimately, like, who's to, if, if these cops had been dressed like cops... And um, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, if, you know, if these cops had been dressed like cops, it's entirely possible he wouldn't have shot at them. And it d really doesn't matter. The fact that he shot at them does not justifies absolutely nothing. But my point is just like, yeah, there's that old like joke where if you ask a cop, if they're a cop, they have to tell you. And like, you know, dumb stoner teenagers convince each other that that's true. It's obviously <laughs> not. But like, it should be. Part yeah. of the reason that that's such a urban myth is because... It, it should sense. be true. Yeah. Like, it, cops should have, and cops should have to always be designated as cops. It is absolutely absurd that we let, you know, like, armed representatives of the state just walk amongst us as if they're normal people. They're fucking not. They're death squads. And the fact that you can just break into somebody's home, look in like a normal-ass person, and then get mad if they meet you with force is... And not only get mad, but the idea that you can respond with a hundredfold the force, Deadly force that yeah. you can also be completely unaccountable for any of it, um, is like explicit, you know, like the, the, uh, the, the, the charges for striking a police officer that struck you. If you're walking down the street and like a cop punches you in the face and you punch them back and then they whip out a badge, they just fucked you, buddy. Yeah. Cause you're like going away. You're spending time. Like this w would have been a regular fist fight with just some other asshole, but this guy has a badge and like that really changes things Eat with or without the clothes. And like, I didn't Tupac, I think Tupac shot a cop that was in plain clothes. He was interrupting some like, um, street fight that was going on. Apparently he like ducked down and like shot the cop, uh, cop in, in the butt. Nice. That rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or, uh, in, in, uh, in Troy, you could, uh, get mauled by a dog 
and uh, and try to defend yourself and end up uh, being charged with uh, assaulting an officer. It's, I don't know if that actually was something that happened to someone like get uh, um, charged, but we have a police dog on the Troy PD that has assaulted uh, t- it was like two or three uh, co- completely innocent bystanders. But that dog took a knee. <laughs> <laughs> Good boy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like. Look, abolish the police, obviously, we want that, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And in the meantime, as we are coming up with demands, and I mean, like, the royal we, like, you know, as society is coming up with demands for police reform, one thing that I haven't seen talked about as much is, yeah, these no-knock search warrants that um, now, you know, Louisville and Rand Paul are bringing up, but also, like, if you're going to be a cop, you have to look like a fucking cop. And you have to tell people you're a fucking cop. No more of this entrapment bullshit. No more of this, like, plain clothes. This is what leads cops open to accusations of being, like, agent provocateurs and, like, starting, you know, and the fact that they're constantly shit. caught doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. No more cops. But in the meantime, like, at least they have to look like the cops. And yeah. they got to quit breaking into people's fucking houses. Killing them in their beds. That yeah. is just out- so outrageously unjust and the fact that Brianna Taylor's case is I mean people are talking about it but relative to other instances of police brutality against men like I do think a lot of the silence around it is the fact that Brianna Taylor's a woman and we don't value black women as much as we do almost anybody else in this country um I think that makes the silence around it all the more loud yeah I think that was uh the uh the idea behind the uh, Kambahi River Collective statement, right? Is that once uh, yeah. once black women are free, by very nature of the oppression, we would all be free. Because they are the most. And none of us are free until. Until they are. Yeah. yeah. It's still true today. And we haven't really done a whole hell of a lot to, uh, you know, get closer to that. Yeah. So justice for Breonna Taylor. Rest in power. Rest in power. Wildflower? Sure. Yes, please. <laughs> Oh, gosh. You know, it's hard to find, like, bits of hope in this in this world. And and we'll just stay on the theme, because it's all cops all the time. Ironweeds pod. Getting back to our roots. <laughs> A-cab. Um, so this comes out of San Francisco. The mayor says that trained, unarmed professionals will respond to non-criminal calls instead of police. And this has, you know, obviously been a very widespread demand in a lot of these movements is, like... Part of defunding the cops means taking a lot of shit the cops do right now and handing it over to people who, you know, I don't know, aren't armed to the teeth and looking for a fight. So um, San Francisco officers will now stop responding to non-criminal activities such as disputes between neighbors. Like, you know, if your neighbor's dog is outside. Um, reports about homeless Speaking people. Speaking of Rand Paul. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Uh, reports about homeless people and school discipline interventions are all going to be part of a police reform reform plan um, the mayor announced last Thursday. So, you know, teeny tiny step in the the close enough to right direction. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, it's it's probably no coincidence that it happened in San Francisco. San Francisco has, like, the highest... I think the highest uh, density of billionaires and millionaires like in the city, it's an incredibly expensive city, very wealthy. Uh, And so the police department is likely, you know, already like used to doing a lot of customer service with rich people, like actually 
uh, defending uh, and upholding the interests of the people that they police because those people are extremely rich. So it, I, I think it kind of makes sense that the San Francisco PD is the first first ones to do this. Right. You know, although San Francisco does have a lot of homeless and it's I should I don't want to minimize the idea that like, you know, if you're not probably a lot of neighbor disputes. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> yeah. So he took my Tesla and he put it in his garage and his garage is not climate controlled. I want him arrested, officer. Or conversely, this house next door to me is so full. It is the fullest house I've ever seen. Sorry. Sorry to anybody who actually lives on the West Coast. Like, we only understand your culture from, like, five totems. Yeah. And one of them is Full House. I've been listening to a lot of Sublime lately, so there's that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, true and on. Southern California style. True and on, yeah. <laughs> nah. I also wonder if, like, we may have a lot of listeners who don't even remember Full House. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. There's this show where absolutely no one had sex. And uh, uh, it was like, you know, this really mean uh, comic decided to be a really sweet dad. It was very strange casting. Meanwhile, two uh, toddler-aged twins were had their lives utterly ruined. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, pretty much all of those children. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Like, like, turned into, like, evangelical Christians or, like, burnout celebrities. Especially, like, the Olsen twins, man. That's yeah. Just, they got, yeah, Olsen twins. Yeah. No more child actors. For real, though. Like, let's, uh, like, once CGI gets good enough, we should just outlaw... <laughs> The child actors. There's only you like a handful it. of jobs that a child can do. Like one of them is acting. Another one is like being a part of a multi-level marketing uh, scheme. If it's like for candy or something, right. sure. Um, but like they F- uh, farming, 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 uh, like, keeping a train running by replacing um, <laughs> tiny parts of it in the in the engine car. Yep. <laughs> Um, uh, tiny hands tiny yeah. hands tiny nimble gotta hands. have tiny hands for some of this stuff working the loom but no like uh <laughs> there's a bunch of uh work that kids can do but like they often can't be paid for it like the whole School. yeah like the whole like girl scout cookies uh, stuff yeah you yeah. know like or shit all, yeah, but all college to, like, sports six flags and stuff yeah all, all college <laughs> yeah, sports all, yeah all, in high school sports yeah, yeah. But yeah. yes, then they do get to go to Six Flags, maybe, if they if they did the best. But they get enough yeah. tokens. Yeah. Tokens that they can go and, uh, I don't know, get like a scholastic like book of like Garfield comics. Oh, yeah, now now we're dating to, ourselves. So when I was in orchestra, we did fundraisers every year where we sold candy. And uh, my mom at the time owned a flower shop and was in this plaza. And she was next to like all these different businesses, Pizza Hut, a couple other places. Um, and an army center like an army like recruitment center um and so i used to go and i would sell my candy to all the other businesses in the flower shop complex and straight up i was fucking 15 and the dudes at the army recruitment center agreed to buy my candy if i gave them all of my contact information so they could recruit to me when i turned 17 and got closer to graduation whoa and i was like fuck yeah how many candy bars are you gonna buy because like you know i had no concept of like information and privacy and like what that would mean for me later yeah, on yeah. and sure yeah. shit uh like started my senior year i got fucking flooded with recruitment materials in the mail from the army oh shit 
To, it's so fucked up that they just like like they have a database for like people that are too young to recruit to. Yeah, but like, but we're gonna get them. Yeah. We're gonna get them. Yeah. My mom was furious when I told her. She was like, "I can't believe that they fucking tricked you into doing that." Um, but I didn't know any better. You know, they they scouted you. Yeah, with with candy. Yeah, and I well, you didn't got like reverse. I didn't even make enough sales to like get any of the good shit that you got for yeah. for doing that. So. Your that data was probably you know more worth more in the hands of like target than than you yeah you know and to think they could have made you into a super soldier yeah if only i could have learned so many skills for the people's revolution (laughs) but i didn't take them up on it instead i went to some hippie ass liberal arts college and (laughs) learned to eat pussy (laughs) (laughs) i do i do remember uh, army recruiters showing up to that college our college and everyone just laughing at them. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, you're in the wrong place, buddy. That's yeah, cool. Right, like, oh yeah, I'm I, I'm too stoned to listen to you right now. <laughs> you want me to do about. what? <laughs> but yeah, no, you're already in college. You don't need the GI Bill. Like, you know, like that that's uh, They're probably like recruiting officers or like bullshit liberal college. They probably go to liberal colleges to try to get like future CIA officers. Yeah. Or just kids who like college isn't working out for them. Yeah. <clears throat> they realize, you know, halfway through their freshman year, like this shit isn't yeah. for me. And now you're aimless. You're looking for something else to do. Maybe you want to shoot some brown people. Yeah. Or or learn to, you know, fix an engine. I mean, that I th- then transport. And I know we, ha- we have some listeners who are like uh, former military. Absolutely. I, a lot yeah. of people join yeah, yeah, the military yeah. not because they want to shoot brown people, but because they want opportunities. They want, you know, career building or, yeah, 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 or no. they're very, you know, um, sincere in wanting and feeling like that's the best thing they can do to provide a, you know, value to society. But it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate the level of propagandizing that goes into well, getting be- people to devote their lives to U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I mean, we both we basically just like hold the entire country hostage with no safety net. And we're like, you can get the safety net of like a normal first world country if you decide to die for it. And this you know? is something <laughs> like, that uh, a, smarter people than me have said is that that's like one of the main forces working against any meaningful change is the fact that like we don't have. Um, like you know, what what do I want to say that when everybody has to compulsory we don't have compulsory military service right and so without that who like cares building, what the foreign policy building is, an you know? eco- well building an economy that works for everyone means mm. the end of our military Just as no, we no know one, it no one would sign up no one would sign up <clears throat> if yeah. it wasn't for economic precarity yeah um, I mean there's definitely a self selecting type that is like just you know either the people that are here and just feel a strong calling to be like literal physical heroes. Like there's yeah. like a lot of people who want to like, you know, risk life and limb for the security and safety of others. And like, there's a lot of, um, you know, goodwill, I'm sure uh, amongst a lot of people that, that join, you know, the U S military. Um, and like, I don't know, there's also, when I think about joining the military, like when I was a kid, one of the biggest things that I had thought about was just like the training is so curious to me that I'd like if there was a non-military military training <laughs> where like you weren't I think it's like called CrossFit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that. But like if they had that kind of uh thing where you like you go and you live in a barracks or whatever with like a bunch of people and like you're like in a boot camp and like you learn how to like 
train uh, and clean your rifle and like learn a basic like survival skills and like you know you you're climbing under the so, ropes so cold now yeah yeah but like but, you know <laughs> so crossfit cold yeah is already oh there's a lot you know happening but, there but you know like maybe the, you could do some anti-recruitment if you're like yeah we're gonna give you that experience for free <laughs> no <laughs> you know? imperialism yeah but no you need it you need the gi bill which means like you know you just give if you have a good set of social programs like free higher education for anybody that wants it um uh and or the uh you know free health care for everybody like so it, then i think a lot of this stuff loses its appeal so yeah. you know the 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 problem I remember back in Occupy was everybody said like you're trying to do everything at once you have like a million demands you have like this desire to like completely change the world into a better place and I think that that how often, dare you yeah I think that that often comes from the the explicit analysis of like understanding how integrated everything is and that there's really no like alternative to that like right. you'd need to simultaneously attack like. 50 or 60 extremely problematic fronts in our society like at once to like be able to make any meaningful progress in like any of them which is to say all of them right and like, that's a great segue into discussing this week's Kropotkin actually because we're gonna this is gonna be the last chapter of the book um it's about agriculture largely because i think that that it, it at first when i you know I've I've been reading the book as I've been reading it to you. Um, so I had not read all of Conquest of Bread before I started narrating it. And I've just been doing it week by week. Um, and so it was a little curious to me when I realized that the final chapter of the book is just agriculture. It's not like a, usually with this type of book, you'd get a conclusion chapter. But I think for I think it's fitting because for Kropotkin, agriculture is the conclusion. And because the way he writes is such that all of these problems have to be addressed kind of all at once, which is a very anarchist approach to change is that like, no, there's no no reformism. Like it has to be everything all at once. Um and so for, you know, Kropotkin, that kind of crescendos into, shocker, bread. <laughs> and so that's what you're going to get um, in this chapter. And then uh, it does have like a concluding section that's a very sort of rousing, you know, call to arms and building the world we want to live in. And it's quite, it's quite beautifully uh, concluded. So I hope you guys really enjoy that. And then the full uh, audiobook will be up on our Patreon Probably, I don't know when I'll get around to compiling it. Probably sometime next week. So, and I will put out an alert when that happens. Cool. Uh, shoot us your your questions for episode 52 for yeah. our one year birthday. And um, thank you so much for all of your support. We're really grateful to you guys. If you could rate and review us on iTunes, that would also be fabulous. We appreciate it. Hell Everybody yeah. who's already done so. And if you hadn't, it's a free way to support the show. It'll take about 30 seconds. Well, fuck yeah. Thanks All so right. much uh, for Hell everybody yeah. listening and uh, have a great uh, week. And uh, yeah. you know. in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. Iron Weeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Iron Weeds Pod. Chris been killing it with the Instagram, by the way, lately. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Chapter 17. Agriculture Political economy has often been reproached with drawing all its deductions from the decidedly false principle that the only incentive capable of forcing a man to augment his power of production is personal interest in its narrowest sense. The reproach is perfectly true. 
so true that epochs of great industrial discoveries and true progress in industry are precisely those in which the happiness of all was the aim pursued, and in which personal enrichment was least thought of. Great investigators and great inventors aimed, without doubt, at the emancipation of mankind. And if Watt, Stevenson, Jacquard, etc., could have only foreseen what a state of misery their sleepless nights would bring to the workers, they would have probably burned their designs and broken their models. Another principle that pervades political economy is just as false. It is the tacit admission, common to all economists, that if there is often overproduction in certain branches, a society will nevertheless never have sufficient products to satisfy the wants of all and that, consequently, the day will never come when nobody is forced to sell his labor in exchange for wages. This tacit admission is found at the basis of all theories and the so-called laws taught by economists. And yet, it is certain that the day when any civilized associations of individuals would ask itself, what are the needs of all and the means of satisfying them, it would see that, in industry as in agriculture, it already possesses sufficient means to provide abundantly for all needs, on condition that it knows how to apply these means to satisfy real needs. That this is true as regards industry no one can contest. Indeed, it suffices to study the processes already in use to extract coals and ore, to obtain steel and work it, to manufacture what is used for clothing, etc., in large industrial establishments, in order to perceive that we could already increase our production fourfold and yet economize work. We go further. We assert that agriculture is in the same position. The laborer, like the manufacturer, already possesses the means to increase his production, not only fourfold but tenfold, and he will be able to put it into practice as soon as he feels the need of it, as soon as the socialist organization of work will be established instead of the present capitalistic one. Each time agriculture is spoken of, men imagine a peasant bending over the plow, throwing badly sorted corn haphazardly into the ground and waiting anxiously for what the good or bad season will bring forth, or a family working from morn to night and reaping as reward a rude bed, dry bread, and coarse beverage. In a word, they picture the wild beast of La Bruyere. And for this man, thus subjected to misery, the utmost relief society proposes is to reduce his taxes or his rent. But they do not even dare to imagine a cultivator standing erect, taking leisure, and producing by a few hours' work per day sufficient food to nourish not only his own family, but a hundred men more at the least. In their most glowing dreams of the future, socialists do not go beyond American extensive culture, which, after all, is but the infancy of agricultural art. The agriculturist has broader ideas today. His conceptions are on a far grander scale. He only asks for a fraction of an acre in order to produce sufficient vegetables for a family, and to feed twenty-five horned beasts he needs no more space than he formerly required to feed one. His aim is to make his own soil, to defy seasons and climate, to warm both air and earth around the young plant, to produce, in a word, on one acre what he used to crop on fifty acres, and that without any excessive fatigue, by greatly reducing, on the contrary, the total of former labor. 
He knows that we will be able to feed everybody by giving to the culture of the fields no more time than what each can give with pleasure and joy. This is the present tendency of agriculture. While scientific men, led by Liebig, the creator of the chemical theory of agriculture, often got on the wrong track in their love of mere theories, unlettered agriculturists opened up new roads to prosperity. Market gardeners of Paris, Troy, Rouen, Scotch and English gardeners, Flemish farmers, peasants of Jersey, Guernsey, and farmers on the Scilly Islands have opened up such large horizons that the mind hesitates to grasp them. While up till lately a family of peasants needed at least 17 to 20 acres to live on the produce of the soil, and we know how peasants live, we can no longer say what is the minimum area on which all that is necessary to a family can be grown, even including articles of luxury, if the soil is worked by means of intensive culture. Ten years ago, it could already be asserted that a population of 30 million individuals could live very well, without importing anything, on what could be grown in Great Britain. But now, when we see the progress recently made in France as well as in England, and when we contemplate the new horizons which open up before us, we can say that in cultivating the earth as it is already cultivated in many places, even on poor soils, 50 or 60 million inhabitants to the territory of Great Britain would still be a very feeble proportion to what man could exact from the soil. In any case, as we are about to demonstrate, we may consider it as absolutely proved that if tomorrow Paris and the two departments of Seine and seine et oise organized themselves as an anarchist commune in which all worked with their hands, and if the entire universe refused to send them a single bushel of wheat, a single head of cattle, a single basket of fruit, and left them only the territory of the two departments, they could not only produce corn, meat, and vegetables necessary for themselves, but also articles of luxury in sufficient quantities for all. And, in addition, we affirm that the sum total of this labor would be far less than that expended at present to feed these people with corn harvested in Auvergne and Russia, with vegetables produced a little everywhere by extensive agriculture, and with fruit grown in the South. It is self-evident that we in no wise desire all exchange to be suppressed, nor that each region should strive to produce that which will only grow in its climate by a more or less artificial culture. But we care to draw attention to the fact that the theory of exchange, such as is understood today, is strangely exaggerated that exchange is often useless and even harmful. We assert, moreover, that people have never had a right conception of the immense labor of southern wine growers, nor of that of Russian and Hungarian corn growers, whose excessive labor could also be very much reduced if they adopted intensive culture, instead of their present system of extensive agriculture. It would be impossible to quote here the mass of facts on which we base our assertions. We are therefore obliged to refer our readers who want further information to another book, Fields, Factories, and Workshops. Above all, we earnestly invite those who are interested in the question to read several excellent books published in France and elsewhere, and of which we give a list at the close of this book. As to the inhabitants of large towns, who have as yet no real notion of what agriculture can be, we advise them to explore the surrounding market gardens and study the cultivation. They need but observe and question market gardeners, 
and a new world will be open to them. They will thus be able to see what European agriculture may be in the 20th century, and they will understand with what force the social revolution will be armed when we know the secret of taking everything we need from the soil. A few facts will suffice to show our assertions are in no way exaggerated. We only wish them to be preceded by a few general remarks. We know in what a wretched condition European agriculture is. If the cultivator of the soil is not plundered by the landowner, he is robbed by the state. If the state taxes him moderately, the moneylender enslaves him by means of promissory notes and soon turns him into the simple tenant of a soil belonging in reality to a financial company. The landlord, the state, and the banker thus plunder the cultivator by means of rent, taxes, and interest. The sum varies in each country, but it never falls below the quarter, very often the half of the raw produce. In France, agriculturists paid the state quite recently as much as 44% of the gross produce. Moreover, the share of the owner and the state always goes on increasing. As soon as the cultivator has obtained more plentiful crops by prodigies of labor, invention, or initiative, the tribute he will owe to the landowner, the state, and the banker will augment in proportion. If he doubles the number of bushels reaped per acre, rent will be doubled, and taxes too, and the state will take care to raise them still more if the prices go up, and so on. In short, everywhere the cultivator of the soil works 10 to 16 hours a day, these three vultures take from him everything he might lay by. They rob him everywhere of what would enable him to improve his culture. This is why agriculture progresses so slowly. The cultivator can only occasionally make some progress, in some exceptional regions, under quite exceptional circumstances, following often a quarrel between the three vampires. And yet we have said nothing about the tribute each cultivator pays to the manufacturer. Every machine, every spade, every barrel of chemical manure is sold to him at three or four times its real cost. Nor let us forget the middleman, who levies the lion's share of the earth's produce. This is why, during all this century of invention and progress, agriculture has only improved from time to time on very limited areas. Happily, there have always been small oases, neglected for some time by the vultures, and here we learn what intensive agriculture can produce for mankind. Let us mention a few examples. In the American prairies, which, however, only yield meager spring wheat crops from 7 to 15 bushels an acre, and even these are often marred by periodical droughts, 500 men, working only during eight months, produce the annual food of 50,000 people. With all the improvements of the last few years, one man's yearly labor, 300 days, yields, delivered in Chicago as flour, the yearly food of 250 men. Here, the result is obtained by a great economy in manual labor. On those vast plains, which the eye cannot encompass, plowing, harvesting, thrashing, are organized in almost military fashion. There is no useless running to and fro, no loss of time. All is done with parade-like precision. This is agriculture on a large scale, extensive agriculture, which takes the soil from nature without seeking to improve it. When the earth has yielded all it can, they leave it. They seek elsewhere for a virgin soil, to be exhausted in its turn. 
But there is also intensive agriculture, which has already worked, and will be more and more so, by machinery. Its object is to cultivate a limited space well, to manure, to improve, to concentrate work, and to obtain the largest crop possible. This kind of culture spreads every year, and whereas agriculturists in the south of France and on the fertile plains of Western America are content with an average crop of 11 to 15 bushels per acre by extensive culture, they reap regularly 39 and even 55 and sometimes 60 bushels per acre in the north of France. The annual consumption of a man is thus obtained from less than a quarter of an acre. And the more intense the culture is, the less work is expended to obtain a bushel of wheat. Machinery replaces man at the preliminary work and for the improvements needed by the land, such as draining, clearing of stones, which will double the crops in future, once and forever. Sometimes nothing but keeping the soil free of weeds without manuring allows an average soil to yield excellent crops from year to year. It has been done for 20 years in succession at Rothamsted in Hertfordshire. Let us not write an agricultural romance, but be satisfied with a crop of 44 bushels per acre. That needs no exceptional soil, but merely a rational culture, and let us see what it means. The 3,600,000 individuals who inhabit the two departments of Seine and Seine-et-Oise consume yearly for their food a little less than 22 million bushels of cereals, chiefly wheat. And in our hypothesis, they would have to cultivate, in order to obtain this crop, 494,200 acres out of the 1,507,300 acres which they possess. It is evident that they would not cultivate them with spades. That would need too much time, 96 workdays of 5 hours per acre. It would be preferable to improve the soil once for all, to drain what needed to be drained, to level what needed leveling, to clear the soil of stones, were it even necessary to spend 5 million days of 5 hours in this preparatory work, an average of 10 workdays to each acre. Then they would plow with the steam digger, which would take 1 and 3 fifths of a day per acre, and they would give another one and three-fifths of a day for working with the double plow. Seeds would be sorted by steam instead of taken haphazard, and they would be carefully sown in rows instead of being thrown to the four winds. Now all this work would not take ten days of five hours per acre if the work were done under good conditions, but if ten million workdays were given to good culture during three or four years, the result will be later on crops of 44 to 55 bushels per acre by only working half the time. Fifteen million workdays will thus have been spent to give bread to a population of 3,600,000 inhabitants. And the work would be such that each could do it without having muscles of steel, or without having even worked the ground before. The initiative and the general distribution of work would come from those who know the soil. As to the work itself, there is no townsman of either sex so enfeebled as to be incapable of looking after machines and of contributing his share to agrarian work after a few hours' apprenticeship. Well, when we consider that in the present chaos there are, in a city like Paris, without counting the unemployed of the upper classes, about 100,000 men out of work in their several trades, we see that the power lost in our present organization would alone suffice to give with a rational culture, bread necessary to the three or four million inhabitants of the two departments.
we repeat, this is no fancy dream, and we have not spoken of the truly intensive agriculture. We have not depended upon the wheat, obtained in three years by Mr. Hallett, of which one grain, replanted, produced 5,000 or 6,000 and occasionally 10,000 grains, which would give the wheat necessary for a family of five individuals on an area of 120 square yards. On the contrary, we have only mentioned what has already been achieved by numerous farmers in France, England, Belgium, etc., and what might be done tomorrow with the experience and knowledge acquired already by practice on a large scale. But without a revolution, neither tomorrow nor after tomorrow will see it done, because it is not to the interest of landowners and capitalists, because peasants who would find their profit in it have neither the knowledge nor the money nor the time to obtain what is necessary to go ahead. The present society has not yet reached this stage. But let Parisians proclaim an anarchist commune, and they will of necessity come to it, because they will not be foolish enough to continue making luxurious toys, which Vienna, Warsaw, and Berlin make as well already, and to run the risk of being left without bread. Moreover, agricultural work, by the help of machinery, would soon become the most attractive and the most joyful of all occupations. We have had enough jewelry and enough dolls' clothes, they would say. It is high time for the workers to recruit their strength in agriculture, to go in search of vigor, of impressions of nature, of the joy of life that they have forgotten in the dark factories of the suburbs. In the Middle Ages, it was alpine pasture lands rather than guns, which allowed the Swiss to shake off lords and kings. Modern agriculture will allow a city in revolt to free itself from the combined bourgeois forces. We have seen how the three and a half million inhabitants of the two departments round Paris could find ample bread by cultivating only a third of their territory. Let us now pass on to cattle. Englishmen, who eat much meat, consume on an average a little less than 220 pounds a year per adult. Supposing all meats consumed were oxen, that makes a little less than the third of an ox. An ox a year for five individuals, including children, is already a sufficient ration. For three and a half million inhabitants, this would make an annual consumption of 700,000 head of cattle. Today, with the pasture system, we need at least 5 million acres to nourish 660,000 head of cattle. This makes nine acres per each head of horned cattle. Nevertheless, with prairies moderately watered by spring water, as recently done on thousands of acres in the southwest of France, one and a quarter million acres already suffice. But if intensive culture is practiced, and beetroot grown for fodder, you only need a quarter of that area, that is to say, about 310,000 acres. And if we have recourse to maize and practice ensilage, the compression of fodder while green, like Arabs, we obtain fodder on an area of 217,500 acres. In the environs of Milan, where sewer water is used to irrigate the fields, fodder for two to three horned cattle per each acre is obtained on an area of 22,000 acres. And on a few favored fields, up to 177 tons of hay to the 10 acres have been cropped, the yearly provender of 36 milk cows. Nearly nine acres per head of cattle are needed under the pasture system, and only two and a half acres for nine oxen or cows under the new system. 
These are the opposite extremes in modern agriculture. In Guernsey, on a total of 9,884 acres utilized, nearly half, 4,695 acres, are covered with cereals and kitchen gardens. Only 5,189 acres remain as meadows. On these 5,189 acres, 1,480 horses, 7,260 head of cattle, 900 sheep, and 4,200 pigs are fed, which makes more than three head of cattle per two acres, without reckoning the sheep or the pigs. It is needless to add that the fertility of the soil is made by seaweed and chemical manures. Returning to our three and a half million inhabitants belonging to Paris and its environs, we see that the land necessary for the rearing of cattle comes down from five million acres to 197,000. Well, then, let us not stop at the lowest figure. Let us take those of ordinary intensive culture. Let us liberally add to the land necessary for smaller cattle, which must replace some of the horned beast, and allow 395,000 acres for the rearing of cattle. 494,000, if you like, on the 1,013,000 acres remaining after bread has been provided for the people. Let us be generous and give 5 million workdays to put this land into a productive state. After having therefore employed in the course of a year 20 million workdays, half of which are for permanent improvements, we shall have bread and meat assured to us, without including all the extra meat obtainable in the shape of fowls, pigs, rabbits, etc., without taking into consideration that a population provided with excellent vegetables and fruit consumes less meat than Englishmen, who supplement their poor supply of vegetables by animal food. Now, How much do 20 million workdays of five hours make per inhabitant? Very little indeed. A population of three and a half millions must have at least 1,200,000 adult men and as many women capable of work. Well, then, to give bread and meat to all, it would only need 17 half days of work a year per man. Add three million workdays, or double that number if you like, in order to obtain milk. That will make 25 workdays of five hours in all, nothing more than a little pleasurable country exercise, to obtain the three principal products bread, meat, and milk. The three products which, after housing, cause daily anxiety to nine tenths of mankind. And yet, let us not tire of repeating, these are not fancy dreams. We have only told what is, what has been, obtained by experience on a large scale. Agriculture could be reorganized in this way tomorrow if property laws and general ignorance did not offer opposition. The day Paris has understood that to know what you eat and how it is produced is a question of public interest, the day when everybody will have understood that this question is infinitely more important than all the parliamentary debates of the present times, on that day, the revolution will be an accomplished fact. Paris will take possession of the two departments and cultivate them. And then the Parisian worker, after having labored a third of his existence in order to buy bad and insufficient food, will produce it himself, under his walls, within the enclosure of his forts, if they still exist, in a few hours of healthy and attractive work. And now we pass on to fruits and vegetables. Let us go outside Paris and visit the establishment of a market gardener who accomplishes wonders, ignored by learned economists, at a few miles from the academies. 
Let us visit, suppose, M. Ponce, the author of a work on market gardening, who makes no secret of what the earth yields him and who has published it all along. Ponce, and especially his workmen, work like slaves. It takes eight men to cultivate a plot a little less than three acres, 2.7. They work 12 and even 15 hours a day, that is to say, three times more than is needed. 24 of them would not be too many. To which Ponce will probably answer that as he pays the terrible sum of 100 pounds rent a year for his 2.7 acres, and 100 pounds for manure bought in the barracks, he is obliged to exploit. He would no doubt answer, being exploited, I exploit in my turn. His installation has also cost him 1,200 pounds, of which certainly more than half went as tribute to the idle barons of industry. In reality, this establishment represents at most 3,000 workdays, probably much less. But let us examine his crops. Nearly 10 tons of carrots, nearly 10 tons of onions, radishes and small vegetables, 6,000 heads of cabbage, 3,000 heads of cauliflower, 5,000 baskets of tomatoes, 5,000 dozen of choice fruit, 154,000 salads. In short, a total of 123 tons of vegetables and fruit to 2.7 acres, 120 yards long by 109 yards broad, which makes more than 44 tons of vegetables to the acre. But a man does not eat more than 660 pounds of vegetables and fruit a year, and two and a half acres of a market garden yield enough vegetables and fruit to richly supply the table of 350 adults during the year. Thus, 24 persons employed a whole year in cultivating 2.7 acres of land and only working five hours a day would produce sufficient vegetables and fruit for 350 adults, which is equivalent to at least 500 individuals. To put it in another way, in cultivating like M. Ponce, and his results have already been surpassed, 350 adults should each give a little more than 100 hours a year, 103, to produce vegetables and fruit necessary for 500 people. Let us mention that such a production is not the exception. It takes place, under the walls of Paris, on an area of 2,220 acres, by 5,000 market gardeners. Only these market gardeners are reduced nowadays to a state of beasts of burden in order to pay an average rent of 32 pounds per acre. But do not these facts, which can be verified by everyone, prove that 17,300 acres, of the 519,000 remaining to us, would suffice to give all necessary vegetables, as well as a liberal amount of fruit, to the three and a half million inhabitants of our two departments? As to the quantity of work necessary to produce these fruits and vegetables, it would amount to 50 million workdays of five hours, 50 days per adult male, if we measure by the market gardener's standard of work. But we could reduce this quantity if we had recourse to the process in vogue in Jersey and Guernsey. We must also remember that the Paris market gardener is forced to work so hard because he mostly produces early-season fruits, the high prices of which have to pay for fabulous rents, and that this system of culture entails more work than is really necessary. The market gardeners of Paris, not having the means to make a great outlay on their gardens, and being obliged to pay heavily for glass, wood, iron, and coal, obtain their artificial heat out of manure, 
while it can be had at much less cost in hothouses. The market gardeners, we say, are forced to become machines and to renounce all joys of life to obtain their marvelous crops. But these hard grinders have rendered a great service to humanity in teaching us that the soil can be made. They make it with old hotbeds of manure, which have already served to give the necessary warmth to young plants and to early fruit. And they make it in such great quantity that they are compelled to sell it in part, otherwise it would raise the level of their gardens by one inch every year. They do it so well, so Baral teaches us in his Dictionary of Agriculture, in an article on market gardeners, that in recent contracts, the market gardener stipulates that he will carry away his soil with him when he leaves the bit of ground he is cultivating. Loam carried away on carts, with furniture and glass frames. That is the answer of practical cultivators to the learned treatises of Ricardo, who represented rent as a means of equalizing the natural advantages of the soil. The soil is worth what man is worth. That is the gardener's motto. And yet, the market gardeners of Paris and Rouen labor three times as hard to obtain the same results as their fellow workers in Guernsey or in England. Applying industry to agriculture, these last make their climate in addition to their soil, by means of the greenhouse. Fifty years ago, the greenhouse was the luxury of the rich. It was kept to grow exotic plants for pleasure. But nowadays, its use begins to be generalized. A tremendous industry has grown up lately in Guernsey and Jersey, where hundreds of acres are already covered with glass, to say nothing of the countless small greenhouses kept in every little farm garden. Acres and acres of greenhouses have lately been built also at Worthing, in the suburbs of London, and in several other parts of England and Scotland. They are built of all qualities, beginning with those which have granite walls, down to those which represent mere shelters made in planks and glass frames, which cost, even now, with all the tribute paid to capitalists and middlemen, less than three shillings sixpence per square yard under glass. Most of them are heated for at least three or four months every year, but even the cool greenhouses, which are not heated at all, give excellent results. Of course, not for growing grapes and tropical plants, but for potatoes, carrots, peas, tomatoes, and so on. In this way, man emancipates himself from climate, and at the same time he avoids also the heavy work with the hotbeds, and he saves both in buying much less manure and in work. Three men to the acre, each of them working less than 60 hours a week, grow on very small spaces what formerly required acres and acres of land. The result of all these recent conquests of culture is that if one half only of the adults of a city gave each about 50 half days for the culture of the finest fruit and vegetables out of season, they would have all the year round an unlimited supply of that sort of fruit and vegetables for the whole population. But there is a still more important fact to notice. The greenhouse has nowadays a tendency to become a mere kitchen garden under glass, and when it is used to such a purpose, the simplest plank and glass unheated shelters already give fabulous crops, such as, for instance, 500 bushels of potatoes per acre as a first crop, ready by the end of April, after which a second and a third crop are obtained in the extremely high temperature which prevails in the summer under glass. I gave in my Fields, Factories, and Workshops most striking facts in this direction. Sufficient to say here that at Jersey, 
34 men, with one trained gardener only, cultivate 13 acres under glass, from which they obtain 143 tons of fruit and early vegetables, using for this extraordinary culture less than 1,000 tons of coal. And this is done now in Guernsey and Jersey on a very large scale, quite a number of steamers constantly plying between Guernsey and London, only to export the crops of the greenhouses. Nowadays, in order to obtain that same crop of 500 bushels of potatoes, we must plow every year a surface of four acres, plant it, cultivate it, weed it, and so on. Whereas with the glass, even if we shall have to give, perhaps, to start with, half a day's work per square yard in order to build the greenhouse, we shall save afterwards at least one-half and probably three-quarters of the formerly required yearly labor. These are facts, results which everyone can verify himself, and these facts are already a hint as to what man could obtain from the earth if he treated it with intelligence. In all the above, we have reasoned upon what already withstood the test of experience. Intensive culture of the fields, irrigated meadows, the hothouse, and finally the kitchen garden under glass are realities. Moreover, the tendency is to extend and to generalize these methods of culture, because they allow of obtaining more produce with less work and with more certainty. In fact, after having studied the most simple glass shelters of Guernsey, we affirm that, taking all in all, Far less work is expended for obtaining potatoes under glass in April than in growing them in the open air, which requires digging a space four times as large, watering it, weeding it, etc. Work is likewise economized in employing a perfected tool or machine, even when an initial expense had to be incurred to buy the tool. Complete figures concerning the culture of common vegetables under glass are still wanting. This culture is of recent origin and is only carried out on small areas. But we have already figures concerning the 50 years old culture of early season grapes, and these figures are conclusive. In the north of England, on the Scotch frontier, where coal only costs three shillings a ton at the pit's mouth, they have long since taken to growing hothouse grapes. Thirty years ago, these grapes, ripe in January, were sold by the grower at 20 shillings per pound and resold at 40 shillings per pound for Napoleon III's table. Today, the same grower sells them at only 2 shillings 6 pence per pound. He tells us so himself in a horticultural journal. The fall is caused by tons and tons of grapes arriving in January to London and Paris. Thanks to the cheapness of coal and an intelligent culture, grapes from the north now travel southwards, in a contrary direction to ordinary fruit. They cost so little that in May, English and Jersey grapes are sold at one shilling eight pence per pound by the gardeners, and yet this price, like that of 40 shillings 30 years ago, is only kept up by slack production. In March, Belgium grapes are sold at from six pence to eight pence, while in October, grapes cultivated in immense quantities, under glass, with a little artificial heating in the environs of London are sold at the same price as grapes bought by the pound in the vineyards of Switzerland and the Rhine, that is to say, for a few halfpence. Yet they still cost two-thirds too much, by reason of the excessive rent of the soil and the cost of installation and heating, on which the gardener pays a formidable tribute to the manufacturer and the middlemen. This being understood, 
we may say that it costs next to nothing to have delicious grapes under the latitude of and in our misty London in autumn. In one of the suburbs, for instance, a wretched glass and plaster shelter, nine feet ten inches long by six and a half feet wide, resting against our cottage, gave us about fifty pounds of grapes of an exquisite taste in October for nine consecutive years. The crop came from a Hamburg vine stock six years old, and the shelter was so bad that the rain came through. At night, the temperature was always that of outside. It was evidently not heated, for that would be as useless as to heat the street. And the cares to be given were pruning the vine half an hour every year and bringing a wheelbarrow full of manure, which is thrown over the stock of the vine, planted in red clay outside the shelter. On the other hand, If we estimate the amount of care given to the vine on the borders of the Rhine or Lake Lehman, the terraces constructed stone upon stone on the slopes of the hills, the transport of manure and also of earth to a height of two or three hundred feet, we come to the conclusion that on the whole the expenditure of work necessary to cultivate vines is more considerable in Switzerland or on the banks of the Rhine than it is under glass in London suburbs. This may seem paradoxical, because it is generally believed that vines grow of themselves in the south of Europe, and that the vine grower's work costs nothing. But gardeners and horticulturists, far from contradicting us, confirm our assertions. The most advantageous culture in England is vine culture, wrote a practical gardener, editor of the English Journal of Horticulture. Prices speak eloquently for themselves, as we know. Translating these facts into communist language, We may assert that the man or woman who takes twenty hours a year from his leisure time to give some little care, very pleasant in the main, to two or three vine stalks sheltered by simple glass under any European climate, will gather as many grapes as their family and friends can eat, and that applies not only to vines but to all fruit trees. The commune that will put the processes of intensive culture into practice on a large scale will have all possible vegetables, indigenous or exotic, and all desirable fruits, without employing more than about ten hours a year per inhabitant. In fact, nothing would be easier than to verify the above statements by direct experiment. Suppose 100 acres of a light loam, such as we have at Worthing, are transformed into a number of market gardens, each one with its glass houses for the rearing of the seedlings and young plants. Suppose also that 50 more acres are covered with glass houses, and the organization of the whole is left to practical, experienced French maraches and Guernsey or Worthing greenhouse gardeners. In basing the maintenance of these 150 acres on the Jersey average, requiring the work of three men per acre under glass, which makes less than 8,600 hours of work a year, it would need about 1,300,000 hours for the 150 acres. Fifty competent gardeners could give five hours a day to this work, and the rest would be simply done by people who, without being gardeners by profession, would soon learn how to use a spade and to handle the plants. But this work would yield at least, we have seen it in a preceding chapter, all necessaries and articles of luxury in the way of fruit and vegetables for at least 40 or 50,000 people. Let us admit that among this number there are 13,500 adults willing to work at the kitchen garden. Then, each one would have to give 100 hours a year distributed over the whole year. These hours of work would become hours of recreation spent among friends and children in beautiful gardens, 
more beautiful probably than those of the legendary Summeramus. This is the balance sheet of the labor to be spent in order to be able to eat to satiety fruit which we are deprived of today, and to have vegetables in abundance, now so scrupulously rationed out by the housewife when she has to reckon each halfpenny which must go to enrich capitalists and landowners. If only humanity had the consciousness of what it can, and if that consciousness only gave it the power to will. If it only knew that cowardice of the spirit is the rock on which all revolutions have stranded until now. We can easily perceive the new horizons opening before the social revolution. Each time we speak of revolution, the worker who has seen children wanting food lowers his brow and repeats obstinately, What of bread? Will there be sufficient if everyone eats according to his appetite? What if the peasants, ignorant tools of reaction, starve our towns as the black bands did in France in 1793? What shall we do? Let them do their worst. The large cities will have to do without them. At what, then, should the hundreds of thousands of workers, who are asphyxiated today in small workshops and factories, be employed on the day they regain their liberty? Will they continue locking themselves up in factories after the revolution? Will they continue to make luxurious toys for export when they see their stock of corn getting exhausted, meat becoming scarce, and vegetables disappearing without being replaced? Evidently not. They will leave the town and go into the fields, aided by a machinery which will enable the weakest of us to put a shoulder to the wheel they will carry revolution into previously enslaved cultures as they will have carried it into institutions and ideas. Hundreds of acres will be covered with glass, and men and women with delicate fingers will foster the growth of young plants. Hundreds of other acres will be plowed by steam, improved by manures, or enriched by artificial soil obtained by the pulverization of rocks. Happy crowds of occasional laborers will cover these acres with crops, guided in the work and experiments partly by those who know agriculture, but especially by the great and practical spirit of a people roused from long slumber and illuminated by that bright beacon, the happiness of all. And in two or three months the early crops will relieve the most pressing wants and provide food for a people who, after so many centuries of expectation, will at last be able to appease their hunger and eat according to their appetite. In the meanwhile, popular genius, the genius of a nation which revolts and knows what it wants, will work at experimenting with new processes of culture that we already catch a glimpse of and that only need the baptism of experience to become universal. Light will be experimented with, that unknown agent of culture which makes barley ripen in 45 days under the latitude of Yakutsk. Light, concentrated or artificial, will rival heat in hastening the growth of plants. A Mouchot of the future will invent a machine to guide the rays of the sun and make them work, so that we shall no longer seek sun heat stored in coal in the depths of the earth. They will experiment the watering of the soil with cultures of microorganisms, a rational idea conceived but yesterday, which will permit us to give to the soil those little living beings, necessary to feed the rootless, to decompose and assimilate the component parts of the soil. They will experiment, but let us stop here or we shall enter into the realm of fancy. Let us remain in the reality of acquired facts.
With the processes of culture in use, applied on a large scale, and already victorious in the struggle against industrial competition, we can give ourselves ease and luxury in return for agreeable work. The near future will show us what is practical in the processes that recent scientific discoveries give us a glimpse of. Let us limit ourselves at present to opening up the new path that consists in the study of the needs of man and the means of satisfying them. The only thing that may be wanting to the revolution is the boldness of initiative. With our minds already narrowed in our youth, enslaved by the past in our mature age until the grave, we hardly dare to think. If a new idea is mentioned, before venturing on an opinion of our own, we must consult musty books a hundred years old to know what ancient masters thought on the subject. It is not food that will fail if boldness of thought and initiative are not wanting to the revolution. Of all the great days of the French Revolution, the most beautiful, the greatest, was the one on which delegates who had come from all parts of France to Paris worked all with the spade to plane the ground of the Champ de Mar, preparing it for the fete of the Federation. That day, France was united. Animated by the new spirit, she had a vision of the future in the working in common of the soil. And it will again be by the working in common of the soil that the enfranchised societies will find their unity and will obliterate hatred and oppression which has divided them. Henceforth, able to conceive solidarity, that immense power which increases man's energy and creative forces a hundredfold, the new society will march to the conquest of the future with all the vigor of youth. Leaving off production for unknown buyers and looking in its midst for needs and tastes to be satisfied, society will liberally assure the life and ease of each of its members, as well as that moral satisfaction which work gives when freely chosen and freely accomplished, and the joy of living without encroaching on the life of others. Inspired by a new daring, thanks to the sentiment of solidarity, all will march together to the conquest of the high joys of knowledge and artistic creation. A society thus inspired will fear neither dissensions within nor enemies without. To the coalitions of the past it will oppose a new harmony, the initiative of each and all, the daring which springs from the awakening of a people's genius. Before such an irresistible force, conspiring kings will be powerless. Nothing will remain for them but to bow before it, and to harness themselves to the chariot of humanity, rolling towards new horizons opened up by the social revolution.